Welcome to Kiki TV, and I'm so glad today to welcome Dr. M.A. Jayashree of Mysore, India. Dr. Jayashree is a PhD of Sanskrit, and she works with uh, PhD students and dissertation students around the world on their studies, and she also teaches in Mysore international yoga students and she also travels now and has taught throughout the United States and through Europe and she began teaching right there from her library in her home a few students at a time and now she's taught hundreds and hundreds of students and I've worked with Dr. Jayashree for about 20 years and what we really learned so beautifully from you is the chanting of the Sanskrit and the chanting of the traditional texts. So it's not simply studying Sanskrit, it's chanting. And Jayashree is also trained from a young age as a Carnatic classical singer, a Southern Indian music style of classical singer. Welcome, Dr. Jayashree. I'm so happy that you're here. Swagatam. Dhanyavada. So, you are there, we were just talking about you're there, living in a very traditional home. At the moment, you said there are 11 members of your family. Many have gathered to stay there during this quarantine. It's a multi-generational home. And when I first met you, there were up to 19 people of three generations and extended family members, all living, all preparing meals together. I remember seeing the men were also preparing the meals and cleaning up from the meals and um, everyone eating together and living there in the home. Everyone learning traditional studies in Sanskrit, in worship, also music studies. All your children play musical instruments and sing. Yes, they were all here. And uh, when you came here, so many people were there and all of them were very happy to see all of you who were coming to the to learn sanskrit and chanting really they were happy now many people have left the place and my son and daughter they are living in america and two other sons of my brother-in-law they are living in bangalore and uh, another two are also in Bangalore of another brother-in-law. But now, because of Corona, they have come to Mysore and they are working from home. So now, because of them, we are 11 people here. So when, we'll talk more about the studies, but when I began studying with you and for many years, Jayashree, you would be chanting. We would all, back there, we can see the dais, the asana that you sit on, and we would be seated on the floor on mats, chanting and doing the lessons. And if the phone rang, <laughs> you would call to the back of the room and say, answer the phone, and who was ever closest at your desk would answer the phone. Who is it? We would tell you who it was, and then maybe we would hand the phone forward, or you would move hand the phone back, or someone would be talking on the phone. And then outside the back window, your neighbors were washing dishes. The dishes in India are traditionally made of steel, so very loud, clanking, and your focus was 100%. And we <laughs> had to struggle for ekagraha, for this one-pointedness. And I think that's the power of Shruti Parampara. So all the learning that we did with you is call and response chanting. And so we had no books in the beginning. We did not know what we were chanting. And you were introducing each chant and we were repeating it back. And we had to put 100% focus on your face, on your mouth, on the movement of your lips and tongue so as best as possible, we could imitate and learn that just as the child is looking always at the mother and learning to speak through that way. Yes. 
Yeah. It was really lovely to make you chant. And uh, it was, at the beginning, it was difficult for everyone because the language is such and the pronunciation of many sounds are not usually used in other languages, that too in English. So it was a little difficult at the beginning. But as they started uh, chanting, and I used to show them how the tongue moves in different yes. parts of the mouth. So when you know that, then you can pronounce certain letters also. So that's how I used to uh, tell them. And they used to learn it. It is not, nobody, it is not impossible for anybody to learn anything. Everybody can learn. Only thing is the methodology you should know. How to pronounce different sounds. So that was what I was doing. And so everybody, even though they did not know the meaning of the chanting, which they were chanting, still, they are the sounds that are very important than the meaning. So the sounds bring vibrations. Because of that only, people transform themselves by chanting. So that way, if a proper pronunciation is made, then there is some transformation in the system. And that there's accompanying that chanting, even if there's discomfort, am I wrong, am I right, this is so hard, as we chant and there is that vibration, there's definitely a feeling of happiness and joy. And we could see, we could feel that transformation ourselves and we could see that transformation and experience it in the students around us. So the chanting really is exhilarating. Yes. So tell us about, you grew up in a home, and this is my understanding, where um, tr traditionally a son is given so much education that a daughter may be given a different education. But in your family, you were the only child and you were a daughter, but you were taught equally as a son would be taught. And so you learned extensive traditional texts and everything like that. Can you tell us about your education? Yes, I studied uh, my primary education in Mysore itself. So in Mysore, when I was going to school, here my grandmother was there, my grandfather was there. My mother used to stay in some other city because my father is, was working in somewhere. So I was here and along with me, some more, see, my cousins were also in my grandmother's family. So in, in, the, in that house. So we used to be together all the time. And one of my brother, older brother, that is cousin. So he, Lakshmi Tatachar, you must have heard, it, heard yes. him. Lakshmi Tatachar was also in our house only. He was studying for bachelor's degree in the college. So at that time, he used to teach me Sanskrit uh, chanting, etc. And Always, uh, I, uh, he used to make me take the exams from different, uh, uh, you know, organizations who conduct uh, very primary preliminary examinations. Different certificate, something like certificate courses or? Some very uh, simple courses, primary courses. Primary courses, usually Sringeri used to give or Bharatiya Vidya Bhavan they used to give. So he made me take those exams because at that time in schools, there was no Sanskrit up to uh, seventh standard. So at home only I studied and usually in India, every house normally they teach children to chant one or the other uh, stotra, that is shloka, any verses in Sanskrit. 
so that their pronunciation becomes very clear. See, by chanting itself, when you chant loud, then your pronunciation of all the sounds will be better. See, when the child is very young, when it starts speaking, it cannot pronounce all the sounds. But when we make them chant some of these letters, which are made into such a pattern, the sound pattern is such so that all the parts of the mouth and tongue, they are utilized. Absolutely. So in that way, I learned the chanting also. And then you're taking these examinations from these traditional like temple town institutes. Mm -hmm. And were there other women also, young women taking these exams? In my house, I was the only girl child. And my mother was there. My grandmother was also well-versed in Sanskrit. And she used to sing. She, she is my first teacher for music. So she used to teach me, but I never used to sit for learning music. So what she was doing is she used to call other children in the locality, neighbors, and make, uh, make them sing or she taught them. And so I learned it. I never sat in front of my grandmother. Just by listening only, I learned music. You were and very yeah. stubborn. <laughs> yeah, I, know. I used to just walk around or run around there in the same place so that it used to fall on my ears. So I learned it. And later I went to, I learned more from my mother. My mother taught me for senior, junior, senior and midwife. And when you were learning the vocal singing, what instrument was accompanying that? Was there an instrument? It is only tambura. Only the tambura, which is just this simple stringed instrument yes. that's yeah. holding the key. Yeah, four strings, uh, which has a big uh, dome here below. Right. Uh, for yes. um, resonance. Yes. That is the only uh, instrument. That is only for Shruti, pitch. For pitch, that's right. Yeah. We should not lose the pitch, isn't it? Whenever we sing, we should be attuned to the pitch. If we lose the pitch, then it will be off note. So in, in Europe and in the West, when someone is studying singing, there is a piano playing every note and they are singing, we sing with every note. And so your learning system there in India uh, is quite different. You're only hearing these four strings and then you're, you have the entirety of all the notes and all the raga, all the combination of notes is living within you. It's not through listening to the exact note and repeating that note. Yes, because the teacher used to teach or show the note, the sound. So then I catch, it is just, music is just imitation. Music or language, they are all just, you imitate whatever they say. But some people cannot imitate the notations. It is very difficult for them. They don't have a musical ear. For others, those who have it, it is very easy to catch the note and then they can sing. But here also we used to use the harmonium uh, for uh, beginners. At the beginning, you show the notes through the uh, harmonium. So that way they used to show this and you have to be with that sound Always. In Hindustani, Hindustani music, another kind of music in India, they use harmonium all the time. Right. And I believe the harmonium, which is a small wooden, like a miniature organ, I believe that instrument was brought by the Western missionaries 
to India. And the Indians are so musical, they just added that to their repertoire. But it is, yeah. it is not originally an Indian instrument. It's a... Yes. So just the piano and the harmonium are similar, but piano has more activities to do. You can do many things with piano. But in harmonium, you cannot bring the gamaka the oscillations. Uh, even in piano it is difficult, but there was a sister in uh, one of these convents here. She used to play Carnatic music beautifully on piano. And that gamaka, it is coming from the stringed instruments. Yeah, string instruments, veena. Yeah, veena is also a string instrument. Yes. And uh, the uh, flute and others also, there also you can bring. It is very difficult in the Western instruments, but still, violin is a Western instrument. But still, in 200 years ago itself, one great composer, music composer, he used that violin for Carnatic music. Yes, and I have heard when I've seen you in concert in yes. Mysore, there is one local musician using the violin and he holds it in a very unique way. Not as we see it in the West, but using it uh, yes. more like an Indian instrument and yes. playing it very beautifully. Because we sit on the floor. Right. Uh, with the uh, crossed legs. So, you have to keep the violin, the head here, and the tail here, below. So th that way, in the, West, in the West it is, they stand and, or even they sit on a chair and That's they right. Yes, he plays it almost like an upside down cello yes. or something yes. like that. Yes. It, it is upside down. So then you went, so, Eventually, you did pursue your music studies and sat for examination. So typically in India, there are all these levels examinations to qualify and be recognized for music or Sanskrit. It's a very different system than we have here. So you went for your music competitions and you went for your Sanskrit and then yes. you went off to Bangalore University. Yeah, uh, only Bangalore University, I went for my bachelor's degree. Okay, and did you so live there in Bangalore with family? Yeah. Uh, my, uh, my father was there for some time. I went to the intermediate, that is from high school year to um, the intermediate PUC, pre-university to Bangalore and then to the bachelor's degree also to Bangalore University and there I studied science. Oh. BSE, Bachelor of Science and I had the subjects physics, mathematics and chemistry. Physics and mathematics were major subjects, chemistry was minor. So at that time I had Sanskrit as a second language. So then when I finished the Bachelor's of Science in Bangalore University, then I wanted to do Mathematics MSc. Oh. Yeah. I had because no my idea. grandfather was a great mathematician. So he used to teach many at home. And so he was a professor in the National Institute of Engineering also. And so I wanted to do Mathematics MSc, but I didn't get a seat there. So in India, there's very few seats for any department. Here in the United States, if we don't get into a college, you can try for another college. But every year in India, there's very limited seats. It's highly competitive. And if you don't get a seat, you don't get to do that subject. So 
to apply for mathematics msc i went to the sanskrit department where lakshmi tatachara was working to get Your the family member gazetted gazetted uh, uh, signature for my mark marks cards and there another professor was there who told me oh, why do you go for go for mathematics msc come for sanskrit mba <laughs> that was that yeah, that's it. so i was hooked to sanskrit yes at that time i'm just curious you were you wearing a sari you really only wear sari no not at that time i was wearing the half sari you know like a girl like more like a young girl yes yes because i was uh, yeah somewhere around 18 at that time so we used to wear the half sari with the skirt yeah with the skirt and then you were what did you do your phd in what was your field of study so you did your masters and then you continued yeah because i had a good marks in sanskrit in bachelor's degree so i got a seat in mathematics um, masters degree in sanskrit and then i studied mathematics um, uh, sanskrit yeah. mm, ma and then uh, finally they announced the research scholar this thing so at that time i applied and another professor was there very close to me he the guided throughout my life that is professor kt pandurangi and he uh, was my guide for my phd at at the beginning before just after my ma i was working in you know nanjanagod yes in nearby pre university college i worked for one month that's all by that time i got this is a scholarship so i went to bangalore and then i studied maybe for four years or so and later uh, i was working with the maharshi institute of research maharshi mahesh yogi right uh, so ma- research- i'm going to say uh, mahesh yogi maharshi mahesh yogi is the yogi of the beatles so uh I think if you know your history that when the Beatles came to India and they found a guru and you can see photos of them they were huge international pop stars very wealthy very successful and then they became devotees of Mahesh Yogi and then that was there was what we call the hippie trail so all these young people uh college students and of the Vietnam war era they started traveling to india and then following the beatles to mahesh yogi so were you working for that institute locally in mysore or did you go up north bangalore oh in bangalore in bangalore and i st- stayed in my uncle's house because my father again he had to go to some other place he was not in mysore uh, he was not in bangalore and my mother was looking after my grandmother who was paralytic in mysore so i stayed in you know narsimhan's house oh narsimhan yeah narsimhan is my cousin so i think many people that are listening know that jayashri teaches in mysore and around the world with her brother but it is actually what would be called her cousin brother their first cousins and so they are they lived in the same home and they have a relationship like a brother and a sister but they're actually first cousins so you were living with uh professor narsimhan your cousin he was also there in that home yes and- because even in their house so many people were living all the cousins many cousins were living there it is it is the system in indian system nowadays we don't have that uh, group system uh, so there i uh, i was staying with my aunt and uncle and uh, they looked after me very well 
and then I went to PhD. Four years I did, and then I did the uh, Maharshi Institute yeah, research. But uh, even after four years or five years, I did not get my PhD. <laughs> I could not finish. It was almost ready, but I could not finish it. So I can. Uh, I married Narsima, my husband, M.G. Narsima. And uh, once I see marriage closes the study. Right. Uh, I came here and I have had two children. That is two PhDs. Yes. And, and then by uh, 90, 2000, uh, 1990, at that time, See, it was already yeah, 15 years. I started my PhD in, uh, I think, 73. 73 to 90, it was just um, sleeping. I don't and think that that's wonderful that you had that support because here, I don't think that's possible. <laughs> No, no, because I never continued the PhD work. My professor was in my Bangalore. I married and came back here. I, I was married in 78. And from 78 onwards, I was here only. So I could not complete totally. But all the, everything was ready. So at that time, Bangalore University announced, if you don't submit your thesis within six months, your registration will be cancelled. And so, you did it. Yeah. Within six months, my, uh, I went to Bangalore and sat with the, the professor and then we finished and submitted the thesis. Congratulations. <laughs> yeah. On the very last minute, we submitted. So, that way, at that time, it was very difficult to get the uh, Devanagari script typed. Oh, I can imagine. Yeah. The Devanagari script is the academically accepted script for the Sanskrit. We also see it in Hindi, but it is a different script than you use there in Mysore, where you have the Kannada script. So. Yeah. So then you were trying to have that printed and typed, and that held you up till the very end. So, Sudharma, you know, the paper, newspaper, daily. Yes. Sudharma, he, the, the person of Sudharma, he did the whole computing, uh, composing, and also printing it out. So, it took a lot of time. Every day we used to stay in his house until one o'clock in the night. <laughs> and then come again in the morning we go. So somehow we finished it. And uh, uh, even after that, after two or three years, I got the PhD. And so, so then you began teaching Sanskrit at a local college in Mysore. Mysore yes. is a highly regarded city of great learning. Um, many people listening might be familiar with Barbara Stoller Miller's Bhagavad Gita. It's probably the most popular Bhagavad Gita translation in the United States, other than ISKCON. That's probably the most popular Bhagavad Gita in the world the, um, from the Hare Krishna. But, um, so Barbara Stoller Miller came to Mysore and worked with professors there and did her translation. So Mysore really is a city known. There's a great, I don't know if it's still called the Oriental Institute, but there's a great library there and a great institute for Sanskrit with many ancient texts, uh, the actual palm leaf texts. So you're in Mysore and you're affiliated with some other professors and some other learning institutes. And now you're being recommended to tutor visiting university students who are working on their master's or PhD. When did you start working with um, 
you know, European or American outside or Asian students? Just before you came. Oh, okay. I think yeah, I came about 20 years ago. Yes, yes, yes. Alexander Medin was the very first student. So Alexander Medin, who's known by the Ashtanga Yoga community, he's a Nor born in Norway, lived in Sweden, he's lived all over the world, and he was studying at SOAS, at the um, School of Asian Studies in London, and he came to Mysore. He was also an Ashtanga Yoga student, and then he began studying with you. He came to study or learn spoken Sanskrit. Right. Jayashree, you worked very hard to try to make me and some others do spoken Sanskrit. And we were like you when you wouldn't sit with your grandmother and learn music. It was so hard. I think yes. because it was so hard for us to learn the Sanskrit, to learn a new language, we wanted to use it. We only had so much new learning brain strength. So we wanted to use it for the for the ancient language, for the traditional studies. And we did our best to talk about what did we do today and what am I drinking in my glass and what am I wearing? And But we were very resistant to learn spoken Sanskrit, but you were affiliated with the Spoken Sanskrit Institute. Your, yes. one of your cousins actually lives in a village, Melkot, where Sanskrit is a living spoken language. Yes. Yes, so yeah. you, you were very excited about that. And um, because we cared about you so much, we wanted to make you happy. We tried daily spoken Sanskrit, but we really gravitated towards the sutras, the beautiful stotram, the songs praising the different gods and yeah. the gurus and the beautiful slokas toward the Gita and toward the sutras and other um, prayers. So... I um, I had been studying at the uh, Shtanga Yoga Research Institute with Patavi Joyce, coming to India for several years in a row. And uh, he said to me, you learn Aditya Hridayam. You learn this special um, verses from the Ramayana that are thought of as these internal Surya Namaskara prayers. Go learn that. So I had to go learn it. And I knew that Alex, I didn't know Alexander that well. Um, at that time, there was maybe 20 students at the Ashtanga Institute, maybe 30. And uh, not like today with tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands doing Ashtanga, but really all of the modern yoga now looking like Ashtanga, an interpretation of Ashtanga. So I went to him and I said, I know that you have a Sanskrit tutor here and I'm looking for a Sanskrit tutor. I have to learn the Aditya Hridayam. And Alex had the mantra Pushpam. He had this full book, only Devanagari. And he was so protective because you're such a generous teacher. You share so much time. You refuse to accept any kind of tutoring fees. And I later changed that. <laughs> I created institute fees so that people could pay into your institute to support all the research. But um, he's, he was like, I'm not gonna give you her information. And he put the mantra pushpam and he opened it up and he said, read that. <laughs> he wouldn't give me your phone number unless I could read Devanagri. And the crazy thing is, just before coming to Mysore, that trip, I had taken a learn to learn Devanagri in one weekend with Vyas Houston of the American Sanskrit Institute. And at the time, my partner, my boyfriend was like, we're going to India in two weeks. Why are you going up there to learn to read and write Devanagri, you know, in one weekend? I was like, because I want to learn to read and write Devanagri in one weekend. So when Alex pushed that book at me, I read the Devanagri and he said, okay, you can have her number. And so I showed up at your door and you said to me, 
we chanted a little bit. And you said, you're not qualified to learn Aditya Hridaya. First, you must learn all these stotram and all these sloka and this chanting and pronunciation. And I think it was three visits later. So maybe five years from when my guru said, you go learn Aditya Hridaya. Then you said to me, now you're qualified. And then I learned Aditya Hridaya. And about one month later, after I had memorized it, Patabi Joyce said, someone said, should we ask him, should we learn Aditya Hridaya? And he's like, you know, but she knows it. <laughs> she can tell it now. And I had only just learned it. Uh, somehow he knew. And then I chanted that. So, so yes, at that time, I think I came to see you every day. You were so enthusiastic to be teaching. You would teach me for two, three, sometimes four hours. And I would say, I have to go. I need to take my lunch. And you would say, we will make you lunch. <laughs> we will make you lunch. Or you have a coffee. And then we would have a coffee. You'd say, okay, let's go back. Let's keep studying. And then I started telling all of my friends, everyone at the Ashtanga Research Institute and bringing them in. And so even when I was not there now, students yeah. began to come. And I used to call you Mahalakshmi. Yes. <laughs> Lakshmi is the goddess of dhanam, of wealth. And um, what happened at that time was everyone had great respect for you. But we travel so far to India. And when it's time to leave, if we've been there for two or three or four months, Everybody gets so busy having to prepare to go back to their country. And then they just say, oh, I can't see Jayashree to say goodbye. Can you say goodbye for me? And I was like, how can you not go there and say goodbye? And I'd be like, you come with me now in this rickshaw and you get her a gift and you do this and you buy the, some fruits and some flowers and let's go. You must thank your teacher and say goodbye. So then at that time, you had started a research institute you and Professor Narasimhan. And so I created a registration form. And fees, the fees were very low. I think it was like 20 US dollars for the month. And so someone would come in, I'd be like, hello, I'm so glad you're here. Here's your registration form. Please fill this out and give me your fees. <laughs> Not like that, but, and these are the fees. Thank you so much. And then when we started having all the CDs, I'd like, would you like to buy the CDs? This is how much the CDs are. And then at the end of the class, I would have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of rupees. And I would fold up the registration forms and I would offer them to you and your brother for the Institute. And you would say, truly you are Lakshmi. Look at all of this coming in. But you began to do so many translations after that, Jayashree. You were yes. working with the International Center for Krishna Consciousness, doing Bhagavad Gita translations. And I think you were working with Swami Dayananda's organization and so many institutes. Uh, yes. Yes. Yeah, that is for, uh, for you. And uh, uh, when uh, Kimberly came, uh, when uh, Alexander Kimberly also Kiki, yes. Alexander Medin brought two more people. Maybe you know all, all of you know him, John Campbell and uh, Christopher Hildebrandt. Yes. So these three were the very first students. And then I think uh, uh, he told uh, uh, Kimberly and Noah, and they came. And it started small, not many people. Later, it grew because of uh, Kimberly only. <laughs> and also, later, those who came here, they invited us to their countries. Yes. So we went there. We went to America three times and uh, Europe three times. We talked in Italy together, you and I. Yes. At Elena School. So what was your feeling about, I know that you really enjoyed the enthusiasm 
of the visiting uh, non-Indian students, that you saw enthusiasm for Sanskrit that you didn't see locally because students, the local Indian students were now looking to professional careers and yes. not to Sanskrit studies, though there was, they had Sanskrit as a yes. minor subject, but they were looking to professional studies. Yes. See, I very much appreciate the dedication of all the non-Indian students. Once they make up their mind to learn something, they are totally dedicated and they want to learn it and uh, until they learn it, they will not stop it. So that is uh, a very important thing one has to have if somebody wants to learn something. Here, they take it easy. The Indian students, they come today, after three days they come and then they disappear. They will not even tell me that they are not coming because of some problem. So that makes me annoyed. Of course. But, yeah. Uh, so that's why I tell them at the beginning when they come here and ask me to teach them, I tell them all these things, but still they don't care for them. So in that sense, the all the Western, I don't want to call it Western, non-Indian. You have Eastern, you have Asian students and... Those students are really dedicated and they want to learn and they love chanting. They love chanting also, even though it is very difficult for them. See, at the beginning, it is not that easy to chant the whole thing. There is the sounds are so different and uh, for uh, Chinese it is still more difficult so that way many students they have learned it and many a times I tell many people who come here the Indian people you just stand outside my room and listen to the chanting those who are inside you will not identify whether they are Westerners or Indians. They are so beautiful, they chant so beautifully and in chorus. And even the Shruti, they don't change. See, here, some people cannot follow the Shruti at all. So the Shruti is when the note goes up or down. So if they, if they are in some other uh, pitch, then the chorus will become chaos. Yes, I had heard that. <laughs> Sometimes yes. we did become chaos. Um, <laughs> when I was there with you about two years ago, you had a very dedicated student, uh, a local woman, and she's a student of yoga as well. And uh, we were chanting Hatha Yoga Pradipika. Yes, and yes. she was yes. sitting before you with her book, yes. reading yeah. Hatha Yoga Pradipika. And yes. I had never chanted so much Hatha Yoga Pradipika. I did not have the book. I was just looking at you. You were my source. And um, she said to me, oh, you are a very great yoga teacher. Can you teach me yoga? And I said, I can give you one lesson. I will give you one lesson. And she was like, oh, yes, what is the lesson? And I said, the teacher is sitting before you. Do not look at the book. Look at the teacher. Put your book away. I think she wanted me to teach her asana or movement of like prana through the shashumna. And I said, put your book away. And uh, she put it away. And in two days, she was chanting beautifully. You're teaching Kama Sutra locally to mostly Indian students. Some, some are from America, some are from India. And I, I was saying that now you're a marriage counselor. You're, you're making their relationships happier. So, so the Kama Sutra is known as an erotic text, but it's also a text about love. 
yes yeah it is very again it went off is it no you're here okay so it is uh, only one chapter maybe the details of uh, sex but all others are how one has to live a good life and uh, the goals of life dharma artha kama kama veda moksha so it is a uh, uh, right way of living with the right desires and with right wealth to fulfill it the right wealth to fulfill it yeah so there's a very common because most of the teachers of yoga that came to the US and to Europe in the very beginning from Vivekananda to Yogananda to Vishnu Devananda to Sachitananda they were all sanyasi and so they taught freely they were not householders they did not have families so there is a strong association for non-indian yoga students that yoga should be free that yoga teachers or uh should not have money and somehow there's an idea that they can live as a poor yoga teacher which is very impractical and so to earn one's one uh has their dharma it becomes their artha that is the path by which they earn their income and they earn their dhanam that is part of their duty to become wealthy and then they use their wealth to support their family the elders the young ones and then to continue that support that as the wealth grows to support their community uh to support a a healthy and ethically based community a healthy society yes a healthy society so um yes let our yoga students that are listening know that this is part of the tradition um what would you say to people that think they can live without some some money some wealth the wealth is important very important money without money nothing can be done not only just money any object of fulfillment any object artha means need not be uh, the uh, financial or cash it's not that anything any object of even thought is artha hmm. so there is a desire in the mind and if you can fulfill by just imagining or thinking about it that is artha and both should be in the righteous way the right desire fulfilled with right artha and that is moksha that is liberation so you will not be having any guilt feeling or sin feeling when you are in the framework of dharma dharma is very important that is the basis of life Thank so the dharma it is very difficult to translate but still it is the righteous way the rules and regulations following the rules and regulations that is prescribed for a good society for a safe stable yeah and growing society so jeshri um i have uh, some questions here that i'm going to read and i want you to know um uh, so namaste it's truly an honor to speak with you i grew up in japan we have a japanese student here um hearing buddhist monks and shinto priests um reciting sanskrit when i came to new york i started to study yoga i immediately felt familiar with mantras and sutras it fascinates me that sanskrit is recited at temple i am aware of the importance of the pronunciation just like chanting sutra makes me happy would you have any comment on this 
on how it's so powerful. I think the question is to be listening to the Sanskrit and hearing the chanting. Listening to Sanskrit also has the same effect as chanting. That's why in all the chants, at the end we say, whether you listen or chant, it has its effect. Because they are just vibrations. And so, the Sanskrit went to the temples, the chanting in temples. It was only because uh, it, it became like the uh, in Rome, it went to church, the Latin. And then it then never came out. But here it was not like that. Many, many scholars were speaking Sanskrit, but in the high discussion level, the technical level, not as day-to-day -day, uh, speaking. So uh, the chanting of anything, the two, maybe even in other cultures, there is some chanting is there. They using carol singing. There, there is something because of that uh, it brings peace of mind. It, it will not disturb your mind for a long period of time. Once you listen to it, even listening to good music brings that happiness, brings that uh, level of uh, mind. So in that way, chanting of Sanskrit, that too particularly Sanskrit, the ancient sages were, I think, very great sound engineers. So they made the combination of certain sounds so that it brings, it changes you or your transformation will happen. That's why, what is a mantra? Mantra is also a sound. You can write it in whichever script you want, but finally it is a sound. What is Om? It's a sound. So the very primordial sound is Om and many, many, there is a verse just I wanted to, I want to, to uh, listen to this. Uh, Amantram Aksharam Nasti. Nasti Moolam Anaushadham Ayogya Purusho Nasti Yojakas Tatra Durlabhaha. See, a mantra, that which is not a mantra, no syllable is there. Every syllable is a mantra. In some part of the mantra, it will be there. Amantram Aksharam uh, Nasti. There is no root which is not a medicine. And there is no person who is useless. But there is difficult, we feel difficult to find one who can bring together great personalities. That's what Kimberly has done. Thank you, Jay. So she is she is my inspiration in you all my, my life. Inspiration, thank you. Thank yeah. you so much. Uh, I think Sanskrit, now we, those that have come to you, we are now bringing what we learned from you to our students, to our communities. We're traveling and sharing it. So the river is flowing uh, to the sea and your teachings are going around the world, whether you are there or not, you're certainly with, in my heart and with all your students. You are a very well-loved teacher, uh, Jayashree. I'm very happy that my students are taking the knowledge further. They are teaching. See, I can lift one lamp. That lamp can light so many lamps. Yes. So it is like that. So Kimberly and many other students of mine, they are teaching and I heard 
Kimberly teaches very well and she doesn't allow the student to see the book. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's a very good thing. But uh, when many people are there, it is difficult for me and they get disturbed. They do. If they, they the have a book in front of them, they get, they, because they are so much used to the eyes. Yes. So they, um, they can look at the book on their own time, Jayashree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's but other the, hours in the day, but it's so powerful to learn through call and response chanting. I have yes. another question here uh, from Yuri. Dr. Jayashree, we are grateful that you could be here today virtually. We are also grateful that you taught Tiki so well. As she could be such a thorough teacher. Thank you, Yuri. My question is on how Sanskrit is mostly preserved. I have seen some online libraries from India. Is it mostly preserved orally or in texts in libraries in universities? So you're involved in some uh, preservation projects, Jayashree. How is the Sanskrit and how are the texts being preserved? Traditionally and also uh, in our modern systems. Yeah, the, the very be beginning is oral transmission. Oral. On oral transmission because yeah, you cannot uh, know what you are pronouncing or what is written there. So oral transmission was there. But later when the English education came into India, so they started reading and writing first. First writing and then reading. See, in learning a language, you have four steps. Listening, speaking, reading, and reading, uh, uh, writing. So LS or W. So the, if you reverse the whole process, start with writing and then read and never speak. So nobody can listen. So that happened, and because of that, we are hooked to the book. Yes, and I want to add that in India, um, children, I think still, but certainly over the many years that I went to India, children still learn uh, re listening and speaking repetition first. So even walking by schoolhouses, we can hear the children inside um, reciting their English language or reciting their mathematics. So they're, and they're not using books. They're, they're memorizing these um, lessons aloud. And when children would see us, they would want to practice their English. And every child had studied the same lesson. Hello, my name is, what is your name? My mother's name is, my father's name is, so they had memorized that through learning and repetition. And we heard it from so many children. Yes, it is easier to learn through that method. Yes, I think it is easier. And when we come to the Sanskrit, you know, we are starting with reading because we have the books, we're excited. And then maybe writing it in the Roman alphabet. Um, yeah. And if people stay, I think, like you say, they're hooked to the book. It, yeah. will, it will impair their ability. And I think what it does when people are only book learning, the Sanskrit and the philosophy related to all these studies, it becomes separate from how we live our lives. And it becomes ancient or outdated or like a, just a, a study that's outside our daily life. I certainly feel that chanting, chanting the sutras, memorizing sutras, chanting Gita, memorizing some of the Gita or all these stotram, it becomes a living language and then it becomes a living subject matter. It is a living, it's a, it's a GPS for consciousness. Yeah. And it's not something that's sitting in the book or sitting in the library. It is the learning and memorizing the words of wisdom. There are so many words of wisdom, Subhashitas, 
which helps you to live a good life. So since you have memorized it, at this time of need or at the time of crisis, you remember that and immediately you can change your mind, the trans it, there will be a transformation. Thank you, Jayashree. So I know with the, there are preservation projects, even here in Mysore at the Oriental Institute and throughout India, where the ancient palm leaf texts are being scanned. Yes. And they're being preserved that way. The, these palm leaf texts are, even I've been to the Oriental Institute and seen them, they're falling apart on the shelves. You have some there in your home. I think you told me that Yes, Maybe yes, four villagers have these yes. books in their yes. home. They have no use for them, but they do need some money. So they come to your home and they say, oh, we have these books. Would they be useful to your library? And so you're preserving some there. And then I know there's that um, John Campbell works with that. And you work with the preservation, the great text preservation. Uh, not John Campbell. I think John Campbell also is in that. And John... Uh, Lar uh, John Brady. Right, John Brady. Yeah. And so they're preserving the text. And they, you, you trained many of their volunteers in translating Sanskrit just phonetically or through writing, even if they cannot understand. Yes, yes, yes. We're training people in that. There was a project like right. that just um, change the uh, method of writing. That's all. See, either on paper or something, you uh, transcribe from some script which is on the palm leaf to the known script. Right. So, Jayashree, what? Uh, what would you like to share with us today as we finish up and some to encourage us in our Sanskrit studies and in our chanting uh, for our lifelong studies? What can you share with us how this is important and how we should continue and why? I, yeah, I couldn't get it. I couldn't get your question. So, I would like to ask for some final wisdom from you to share with us that can encourage our ongoing studies. Yes. We, as Patanjali says, Abhyasa Vairagya Abhyam See that the Chittavrittis are always scattered. Our mind is always scattered. It is thinking so many things at a time. So we have to bring it to focus. And then it can be done only by abhyasa practice. And vairagya with a uh, complete confidence that I will reach the goal. So that is Radha. Yeah. You have that faith. Yes. Then we can achieve many things. Whatever we want to achieve, that should not stop in the middle. We want to just want, uh, don't want to throw it away in the, in the beginning, in the middle. So we have to have a goal and we have to, we must try to achieve it. And Sanskrit is very important because that is the key to the whole traditional ancient knowledge of India. If you don't have a key, how can you, how can you see the house, the mansion? It's a big palace, so many rooms, so many subjects, so many works, but all are in Sanskrit. But don't think that all Sanskrit works are written in Devanagari only. There are many scripts, but still, if you have some book nowadays, so many books are available on internet, etc. But you can 
start a little study of Sanskrit, then you have a key for you, for yourself. You can open it. Of course, at the beginning it looks very difficult. But once you are into it, then the, it shows you the path. It shows you the road. Then you can move on. Thank you, Jain The knowledge of India, knowledge of ancient India. Thank you. So, Swagatam, thank you, Jayashri, for joining us today. Thank you for encouraging us to uh, continue our studies, Nairantaria, not to yes. leave them, yeah. uh, but to stay with them. And I, I absolutely agree. The Sanskrit, maybe I didn't understand when I began, but Sanskrit chanting has definitely been a key that has opened up the treasures of the Indian thought and the yoga thought and the darshanam, but also to my consciousness, to my own awareness and given me the ability to uh, hopefully abide in the yama and the niyama. That is why Raja, you should have that. <laughs> you trust it. Right. Have it. Thank you. Jason, there's some people here who would like to say hello to you today. And we have uh, Deb Williams, who has studied with you in Mysore. Deborah, who I think is your student from California. And uh -huh. Jay, who I don't know. Mariko from Japan. And then we uh -huh. have Susan and Yuri, who's also in California. So if everyone wants to turn on your audio and just say hello. So Devora is there? Yes, Devora. Oh, Susan is one of Deb Williams' students. Thank you for inviting her. Um, you guys, who's there? Jayashri, namaste. Hi, Devora, how are you? I'm good, how are you? Thank you so much. I have not written to you. I did not answer. That's okay.